We're going to look at Revelation uh, chapter 3 today. You can open your Bibles in there, uh, verses 7 all the way down to 13. The Church of Philadelphia, and that's not Philadelphia that I drove by last week. It's uh, a different different Philadelphia, but uh, there's there's some really interesting things here, and just the the promises that God has made to the faithful ones. And uh, all right, let's let's go through some of the uh, just just the background information in there. I'm not going to spend too much time in here. Uh, just the overview of the of the letter. I want to highlight some things to you. Uh, nothing nothing changes from the from the structure that we've talked about it. Pretty much every single letter is going to have the same structure. But there's some, some inter- interesting things about this church. Um, here's just some pictures for you to see. I don't know if you guys can see back here because of the podium, but just the, uh, the structure that was there, the location, a big valley, and that's going to make, um, that's really interesting when it, comes, when it comes to like what took place 2,000 years ago and why Philadelphia was actually created and some of the problems they they faced uh, the mountains and, and some other areas in there. Um, but Philadelphia is actually located about 30 miles east of Sardis. And you have the idea here on the map. It was actually the newest or the youngest uh, of the seven cities that were established around uh, one, 189 BC. And you have that in your second paragraph in there uh, 189 BC by Eumenes II. He was the king of Pergamon. And uh, his brother, really interesting fact here about the name of the city and how this came to be, it was that his brother became the, his successor and he was very loyal uh, to, to his older brother and that earned him the, the nickname Philadelphus, which is in your notes, you have it in there, the one who loves his brother, right? So the, the brotherly love in that sense uh, in 17 AD, the city actually suffered a really huge earthquake, uh, and that caused the city to be destroyed. Um, as a result of that, the, the Roman Empire actually gave the city five years without no taxes, so he didn't have to pay any taxes because they wanted the, the city to be rebuilt, and that's how they realized that they could help the city. But we're going to realize that maybe that was not the best option as we go through this. Now, later on in, 19, in 90, 92 AD, Domitian actually uh, attempted to encourage uh, the city to grow crops. And, and part of that was to destroy the, their, their grapevines, okay? So they produced a lot of grapes and, and encouraged them to destroy that part of their, their agricultural society in order to be able to produce other things like crops in order to be able to survive. And uh, the city actually... Uh, Received that as a, as a betrayal from the Roman Empire. Now I want you to I want you to remember. I'm going to write up here just the word betrayal. Okay. And I want you to remember just that word as we as we go through this. So now let's let's go through the opening here. Um, verse seven. It says this to the angel of the church of Philadelphia. Write the following. This is the solemn pronouncement of the Holy One, the true one who holds the key of David, who opens doors no one can shut and shuts doors no one can open. So there's, there's two aspects here. And the description here of Christ is, is actually a lot 
it's a lot more exhaustive than any other descriptions that we've seen so far in the book of Revelation, okay? So there's a really interesting aspect about this, and the reason for it, we'll, we'll see it later as we describe this. But here, here's what it says, the Holy One and the True One. Uh, both titles, and you see that in your notes right there, it, it are combined in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. And it's, it's really a description of God, okay? The Old Testament uses that in Isaiah chapter 40, 43, and throughout other passages as well. And Osborne makes a really point. He says the Holy One is often also associated with, with Christ in the New Testament. So now you have, you have the Old Testament background saying that the Holy One is actually a description of God himself. And then John is writing through this revelation saying that the description of the Holy One is also associated with Jesus, which I think you realize the connection they're starting to make, right? Now, here's what it says. It shows the divine oranges of Christ that he is one with Yahweh, right? That he and the Father are one. Now, the Greek term here for true suggests that Jesus is both genuine and faithful. Genuine and faithful. Now, remember I just wrote the word betrayal here. If, if you think about the word genuine and faithful, you realize that betrayal is completely the opposite, Right? So now, now you, have, you have the empire as seen as the one who betrayed us, and now you have the one who is holy, which means he's set aside, he's completely different, he's true, and he's faithful, okay? Now look at this, the self-disclosure, right here, the last, the last sentence on that paragraph, the self-disclosure serves as a comfort to the believers in Philadelphia and a rebuke to those Jews who deny Jesus as the true Messiah, now, the second aspect here is that Jesus holds the key of David. Now, this is also an Old Testament phrase. Isaiah uses that a few times. Isaiah 22, uh, verse 22 says that the, that the key of the house of David was given to a man named Eliakim. Now, the key actually granted, if you think about this, the key actually grants access to something, Right? Like last night, we opened the, the, the church for the boys' Bible study. I was the first one to be there. I had the keys. I opened the door. I granted everybody else access to the building, right? Now, the idea here is this, that he's going to grant access to something. And the idea is the Davidic covenant and his palace, the one who would exercise authority and firm control. Now, go to the second page on your notes, to the second line. And I think this is very significant. Because it says this, in many ways, the man that was described all the way in, in, in Isaiah, Eliakim, he, he serves as a type of Christ. Okay, so let me make the analogy here. There's three things that I want you to see. He was, first of all, he was appointed to a royal office. Okay, so there's the, the, the royal office idea in here. He exercised priestly duties, and he had power in one sense equal to the king. Okay, now, now let's take that. To what the New Testament, and this brings a lot of memories back to the book of Hebrews in one way, right? Because here's, here's where the comparison comes when it comes to Jesus. It says he was appointed by God, in your notes, number one, to have a greater office than Eliakim. And I know the book of Hebrews doesn't make that comparison, but it compares him as with Melchizedek, right? So a greater office. He was a superior priest. And he was one who was actually eventually is going to rule as king over the Davidic throne with equal power to God. Now, 
Let me, let me ask you one thing. I'm, I'm going, I just started going through the New Testament again, and I'm, I'm going through the book of Luke, and something actually jumped out to me this week, and I want you to turn Luke chapter 1 really quick. We're not going to spend too much time in there. There are three verses that I want you to see from Luke chapter 1, verse 32, 55, and 69. Can I have somebody to read those verses to us? Verse 32, 55, and 69. Chris. Yeah, I don't mind at all. Thank you. He will be great and be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. 32, 55, and 69. Sixty-nine. Now, those are three verses that all of us have read before, right? And those are the two descriptions right there of who Christ really is. Now, it's really interesting that Luke actually goes back to the fact that that promise of the one who holds the key of David needs to be applied, right? God's going to keep his promises. He has to keep his promises, otherwise he's not God, right? So he's going back to something that's essential to the Jewish society. God promised that the Messiah would hold the keys of the throne, the, the, the throne of David. Now that has to be fulfilled, and that's the last, chat, last book in the Bible, and even through the Gospels. Now, here's the last thing here. He, he opens and shuts doors. And, and once again, I think that has to do with absolute power. I have the ability to do so, okay? Unlike the religious Jewish authority who shut believers out of the synagogues, Jesus bears ultimate authority for shutting and open those doors, right? So one commentator is going to write this, that ethnic Israel, which was claiming to be a divine agent, wielding the power of salvation and judgment no longer held this possession. Now, let me, let me ask you this. Why would the description of Christ be significant to the church in relationship to those three aspects? Why is the description of Christ to this church significant to them? What do you think? It ties back. It ties back to his promises. What else? I was interested in how the Romans betrayed them for those because they claimed that he betrayed them. So the one who had physical power and physical authority and physical ability to open and close doors betray them, but not the Holy One not the true one, not the one who made the promise that the, the Messiah would be the one coming from the line of David and he would be the one ruling on the throne and not the one who would open and close doors. Now, you realize God is making a comparison here, right? And God is allowing us to see the comparison between the two things, what the world has to offer in one way and what God has to offer to the church. Now, let's go back to the body here, verses 8 through 11. Uh, let's look at the assessment of the church in verse 8, here's what it says. I know your deeds, 
And I said, again, the last two times I was here, it is a really interesting study to study just what God knows or what the descriptions of the knowledge is in all those seven churches. And I know your deeds. Look, I have put in front of you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, but you have obeyed my word and have have not denied my name. Now, listen, there's two churches in this whole description of the seven churches that, that received no uh, rebuke from the Lord, Philadelphia and Smyrna, okay? And here's, here's what God's going to talk about, their, 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 what he knows about them. The first one is their deeds. The idea of like the statement right here that no one can actually uh, shut that door has two major interpretations, okay? So let me give you them right here. There, you have them in your notes. The first one is, that the, the open door is a reference to the, the, the missionary possibility. Just like the Apostle Paul asked the church to pray for an open door for the gospel, the, the interpretation here could be that they're being asked to actually have an opportunity to share the gospel, okay? But the, the second interpretation, and I think this is the one that fits a lot better with the text here, is, is a reference um, to the kingdom, to the kingdom of God, because the, the open door here is most likely like a statement um, assuring the believers of their access to God rather than success in leading, leading others to him. Right? This, this actually falls more into the category of this idea, right, of what we've seen in verse 7. Now, the second one is that God knows their deeds and also their limited resources, um, we could see this as, as, as two, in two different ways, right? We could see this as a, as a rebuke. You have little to offer. Why is that? But I don't think, also, I don't think that that's, that's what's taking place here. He's talking about uh, a reference to their lack of size and stature, how, how people actually saw this church on the outside. One commentator says this, their faithfulness testifies to their grasp of the wider Christian truth that God's strength must supply what they lack in their, their own spiritual resources. And you have as a reference here a few verses, but one of them is Philippians 4.13 that everybody uses most of the times out of context, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that was true for the church. Now here's, here's what God is going to say now in verses 9 through 11. He's going to give us the promises to the church Okay, the first promise is that the church will rule over their oppressors. Now, I ask in the beginning to just read the text and make some observations, okay? As we go through the text, if your observation matches the verse we're going through, just raise your hand and say, hey, this is what I thought, okay? Um, And we'll do this together. Now, here's here's the promises to the church. The first one, he's going to ask the church to rule over their oppressors. I don't know about you. (laughs) <laughs> but I, I used to see basketball as um, me against my opponents, and that's what, we, that's what we see it most of the times, right? I'm playing against somebody who's going to try to oppress me to beat me up, right? That's, that's literally the idea. Somebody's going to try to come here and hum- humiliate me. And in one way, humanly speaking, that, that feels really good to know that God's going to do this. 
But God's not doing this to bring pride into, into this church, right? He's trying to make them to have the right perspective. So look at this. The church is going to rule over their oppressors. It, once again, in the church of Smyrna, the statement of uh, you, you belong to the synagogue of Satan appears. And right here, those from the synagogue of Satan are actually lying because they claim to, to, to be God's people and obey God's law, but they're actually not. They're not. Because a true Jew actually possess, possesses not only the circumcision of the flesh, but it will be the circumcision of the heart, which is more important. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 2. And then he says, not only you're going to rule, but they're going to bow down at one's feet in verse 9. Listen, I'm going to make those people from the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and they're not, but they're lying. Look, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Now, the bowing down here is probably a reference to Isaiah. Once again, chapter 60, verse 14 says, The sons of your oppressors will come down bowing before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet which is a similar promise that was made to the church in Thyatira, where the faithful ones will rule over God's enemies. Now, you have a question on page number three right there, and here's, here's what I want you to do. How are the Jews, if you think about this so far, how are the Jews and the believer, believers in Philadelphia different? Just, just tell me, why do you think they're different? What would make them different? Okay, so let's, let's, let's put right here, uh, lies and truth. All right, what else? What do you think? What makes, what makes them different? Say that again. So, circumcision... And I'm going to put not. Okay, no circumcision. What else? What makes them different? Okay. So we're going to put law and grace. Is that okay? What else? Unfaithful and faithful. Okay, so... We're gonna put we're gonna put faith in here. We're gonna put no faith, or perhaps they have they had faith, but it wasn't the right content, right? What about this? What about this church here? I'm gonna put B for believers and J for Jews. What about um, what about power? This, this group has no power, right? It has no strength. This group has all the strength and the oppression is coming from them. What about suffering and persecution? Oppression. What about this one? One is oppressed, the other one is the oppressor. And I'm not talking about anything with CRT and anything like that. I'm just talking about what's going on here. What, what, about, what about one, the believers have the promises of God 
But the Jews now, they have the punishment, right? You're, you don't belong to us anymore or to me. What about this one? One has commendation. The other one has condemnation. Now, I don't know, I don't know if that gives you any goosebumps, but I, you may not have anything in this life, but you know you have God's commendation because of the blood of Jesus. And that's the point that, that, that John is trying to drive here. Hey, apart from all the things that are going on, God's promises are going to be true. You, one is loved by God. The other one wants to be loved, but actually looks for affection in all, all other areas. And one is circumcised in the heart. The other one is just outwardly. And here's my question for you. You don't have to answer me. But what group would you like to be part of? And here's the other question. What group are you actually living in? Because I, I know for a fact that if we were saying we belong to Jesus and we have his promises, we, we're part of this group. But a lot of times we live as if we were part of this group. So we have his promises. The church will rule over the oppressors. And here's the other one. The church will be kept from uh, the hour of testing. Now, this, this is a very tricky one, okay? And uh, I'm not a Greek scholar. And, and here's where the argument lies. There is a preposition in the Greek, and I'm not going to be technical because my Greek professor is sitting right there. There's a preposition in the Greek that's the word, and there's some accents in here, the word, the word ek, okay? And um, I want to do this, and there's going to deduction on my grade. Uh, this preposition is what causes that passage to, to have some distinct interpretations, okay? So when we talk about tribulation, there's, there's four main views right here, so I'm going to I'm going to make a line here, and I'm going to do, I'm going to do uh, pre-trib. I'm going to do mid. I'm going to do something called pre-wrath. And I'm going to do post-trib. Okay? Now, what makes the difference in interpretation of when Jesus Christ is going to come back is based not only on that preposition, but... A lot of times based on that preposition, because there's a lot of other passages that we got to take into account here too. This preposition here, as we translate that the Lord, listen to this. I'm going to read it again for us here. Verse 10, because you have kept my word, uh, kept what, because you have kept my admonition to endure steadfastly, I will keep you from the hour of testing. So our translation says that this preposition is translated from, and, and you have the from, what, what that is, and that's the hour of testing. Now, the other side would say that this preposition here should be interpreted as in or through. Now, you see how this is going to make a lot of difference? If I'm going to keep somebody from, if I'm going to keep my daughters from uh, having to wash their hair tonight, is one interpretation, but if I'm going to have my, my, my daughters in the shower to wash their hair tonight, it's completely different. One is going to happen now. The other one is going to keep from happening. 
Now, this determines if you believe that Christ is going to come back before the tribulation. He's going to keep you from the hour of testing and not, not just the tribu tribulation, but from the hour before. Or if he's going to keep you through and show up at the end. Now, this is why I think you don't have to learn Greek, but this is why you need to understand how biblical significance and understanding the biblical text is significant to us. Because out of that, three interpretations were made. The pre-wrath doesn't come out of that. Okay? So here's what I want to do. I want to read this for us really quick right here. Now, the promise here, the church will be kept from the hour of testing. The hour of testing here is the period of unprecedented judgment and suffering that will come upon the whole world. The term testing in related words like tribulation are used to describe the general experience of the godly in a fallen world. But according to Revelation 3.10, it describes the intense suffering of the final period. Okay, it goes back to the Olivet Discourse in, in Matthew chapter 24. Now listen to this. Based upon John 17... My prayer is not, you, not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. The promise of protection is out from within. In other words, the Lord will watch over or guard the church through the tribulation period, right? However, the promise made in Revelation 3.10 seems to express keeping from the hour of testing, like I mentioned earlier, of protecting in or through the hour of testing. So it seems like God's going to, Keep us from that moment, okay? So this suggests that the promises to keep the Christians in Philadelphia from the future period of severe worldwide trial by taking them away from the scene, from the scene entirely. Like Charles Ryder is going to make a, a statement here. The use of the preposition in the Greek translation of the Old Testament always indicates external, not internal, preservation, in addition, if we read uh, John uh, 17, 15, in light of the New Testament passages, such as Colossians 1, 13, the believer is kept from the evil one. Now, look at the last sentence in there. Thus, it seems more likely that we're referring to a preservation from a period of affliction instead of protection in or through that period. So here's... A little bit of the graphic. External preservation. A period of time. The nature of the tribulation. The preposition. And then you have the idea of first and second Thessalonians. Right? And we look through all of that. Now here's the other promise. The church is going to witness the coming of the Lord Jesus. This is actually the fourth time that's mentioned in, 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 the, in this letter so far. But it's the first time that's a reference in a positive way, not in a negative or judgmental. Because the imminent aspect of Jesus coming with the phrase, no one will take away your crown, is a call to the believers to continue to endure steadfastly as well as to continue to hope in the promises of God. That's encouraging. This is actually, if, if I think this practically as a biblical application, I think, I think this is a challenge for you to be faithful. 
Oh, the tribulation is going to come. I'll get my my acts together once we get there. I I could look at the other way and say, oh, you know, uh, yeah, I believe post-trip. So when God, when when the tribulation starts, I'll just, I'll start to be faithful. Hey, guys, there's no tomorrow. Okay, so this is not an excuse to, to, to fail, I mean, to sin. So, once again, um, yeah, it, it's just an encouragement to us. And the last one here, the last, the last promise, the church is going to receive a crown. And I'm, I don't know about you, but as I look at myself, I don't see much royalty. I, I, honestly, I, I, there, there's no much royalty. Apart from the blood of Christ that was shed and, 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 and shed for me, that's the only royal thing that, that it's in there. And so for me, to, for me to see that God is making a promise to them that they're going to receive a crown, it's like the whole idea of like an undeserving gift. So, could, curious, yeah, go ahead. Could crown be, be like the promise, don't let anyone take your promise? Set a crown? I mean, I, that might be split here. But. Yeah, I, I wouldn't take it that way. Because nobody can take that promise away. If you go online, and I was gonna, I was gonna do this today, but but I decided not to. If if you go online, uh, I just just give an illustration really quickly because time is running out. Um, when, when you look at when you look at prophecies and you look at fulfillment of prophecies and you look at m- mathematical possibilities, okay. And you talk about Jesus fulfilling a certain amount of prophecies. I'll give you an example. If he fulfills like eight prophecies about himself, the, 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 the possibility in terms of mathematical number is 10 to the power of 17. Okay? If he fulfills 48 prophecies about himself, this is a mathematical formula of 10 to the power of 157. Now, let me just give you an idea of what this looks like here. This would be that I, cra- I grabbed a silver dollar and I put a little dot on it and I filled the entire state of Texas two feet deep of silver dollar coins, okay? And I put that dollar, the silver dollar coin with one red dot on it and I threw it in there and I told you, close your eyes and go find that coin. That is the possibility of eight prophecies about one person being fulfilled. Now, this is 48. There's plenty more. Now, you see the greatness of the promises that God's making? So that's why I didn't think the promise is related to this because nobody can take the promise away from them because the promise is in God's hands, right? So that's an application for you. All right, let's, let's look at the conclusion here. Jesus made two final promises to the, to the overcomer. The first one is that he's going to become a pillar in the temple. Um, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the church is a pillar in the foundation of the truth, right? So such, such a promise of permanently dwelling in God's temple would have been uh, appreciated by the Philadelphians since the city suffered the earthquake that I mentioned to you earlier. Now the promise, this promise would be a promise of stability, if you want to summarize this, okay? Because... If there's an earthquake, there's nothing stable. Now you're a pillar in God's temple. 
This promise in verse 12, the one who conquers will make a pillar in the temple of my God and he will never depart from it, is the idea that the promise should be associated with the future coming of Jesus when he will bring stability and permanence for the child of God. And God will never leave. And that's why Ephesians chapter 1 is significant, that God has given us the spirit as a, as a way of guaranteeing our future inheritance. Now, the second one is not only the pillar idea, but the Lord's going to inscribe uh, the name of God, the name of the city, and the new name of Christ. Okay, so let me just read this for you. The Lord will write the name of God, the name of the city, and the new name uh, on him or her. And this metaphor of writing, that's on page four, uh, of writing a name on a pillar has several possibilities. One is um, that Solomon, you know, placed two pillars in the temple called uh, Yaqin, I'm not, I'm, that's the Hebrew word right here, which means he establishes, and Boaz, which means strength is found in him. Two, uh, Eliakim, which is the person we talked about earlier, uh, as a peg in a short place on which the weight of the house of David rests. Or three, uh, Hellenistic culture, where names were actually extremely important. But here's, here's the, the idea of the trifold inscription in there. The name of God is a reference to God's children, Okay. The city of, of my God symbolizes the overcomer's right to dwell in the new Jerusalem. And number three, the name of God, the, the new name, I mean, of Christ is the name waiting to be revealed in his second coming. Now, there's, there's a lot for us to think here, and I just want to give you some applications just really quick as we close here. However you looked at this text today, here's what you need to see. God is faithful and he's going to keep his promises. Okay, so number one, while God's promise may seem distant and inaccessible, the Lord is working in and through us for his glory. That's why 2 Peter says that he's not, he's not slow concerning his promises. That's the verse you have in there. B, faithful service to the Lord rests not upon how grand or our performance might be, the number of converts, and that's pretty good for a pastor, right? You don't have to worry about those things because you're not called to make converts. You're called to be faithful. Or the size of our sphere of influence, rather faithful service contingent upon our continual devotional to him. And see, the longing of every faithful follower of Christ will come to fruition. And that's, once again, it's based on his promises, not the assurance that I am able to promise things for my own good. The Lord assures each one of us that, he, that, that we will have intimacy with him as, as well as dwell in his presence forever. And that's a great promise. Uh, let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for this text. It's a lot to process. But Father, we trust in you and we, we are so grateful that we can believe in your promises and that your promises are true. So Father, help us just to be faithful. Help us to finish well. We don't know when that moment will be, but we pray, Father, that we will not wait until tomorrow to say, I want to be faithful now. Help us to be faithful in the moment that we live because that's all we have. We thank you for Jesus, for saving us, for giving us hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Wow. Thanks, Michael.